Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Making Data Simple, or as Tim Ferriss would say, ladies and germs. I'll give you three quotes for today. Um, number one, the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Steve Jobs. Another quote, it always seems impossible until it's done. Nelson Mandela. Third quote, barbecue may not be the road to world peace, but it's a start. Anthony Bourdain. Given I'm from Kansas City, where we have the best barbecue in the world, you know which one I'm going with. Number three is the best. That's how we'll save the world. Barbecue. I'm going to jump in. And today's topic brings us back to data and founding tech companies, but but data as well. My guest today is Rohit Chaudhry, who's the CEO and co-founder of Excel Data. Let me introduce Rohit a little bit here. He's developed a multi-dimensional data observability cloud that'll help enterprises observe and optimize modern data systems and maximize return on data investment. Prior to Excel Data, Rohit Chaudhry served as Director of Engineering at Hortonworks, where he led development of data plane services, Ambari, and Zeppelin, among many other products. He's passionate about big data, so we have a lot in common here. Rohit, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much, Al. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, in your sequence of quotes, you know, I would also like to add a quote. You know, they said, don't give up on your dreams. So, you know, I just went back to sleep. Very good. That's a good one. You beat me. You beat me. Thank you for that. Indeed. <laughs> Very good. Again, thanks for being here. But please share your bio in a bit more detail, if you would. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, uh, like you mentioned, I'm the founder and CEO at Excel Data. I've been running this company for nearly four years now. Um, you know, we are in the fourth year. Uh, started in 2018 with a bunch of really good friends and co-founders, all from Hortonworks. Um my journey in doing startups has been, you know, depending upon where you put the reference, you know, it either started in 2018 or it started in 2008 when I joined my first startup. Uh, that was in Mobi a long time ago. You know, mobile uh, was undergoing a revolution. I'd seen a bunch of my friends carry the iPhone late in 2007 and in 2008 early when I got an opportunity to jump into a mobile advertising company. I knew mm-hmm. that the future had arrived. So I just joined over there. Worked a lot over there in, you know, ad networking, understanding the paradigm of advertising, learning how data would scale in the years to come. And ever since just got hooked. So everything that I did after that was in and around data. 2014, I think, you know, towards the end, I started getting the opportunity of working at Hortonworks. And I just felt like a kid in a candy store. There was so much to do with data. So many different projects, all of them coming together in one big data platform. And just look at what happened in the world. So, you know, I continue to be fascinated with what's happening with data and so excited to be in this industry. Yeah, data for me. That's why it's making data simple, right? That's that's why I've never changed the name, even though we talk about leadership and everything else, because in one form or another, it always surrounds data. One thing I read about you is that it said you were inspired to start Excel data after repeatedly witnessing customers multi-million dollar data initiatives fail, despite employing the latest technologies and having the best data experts. Is that true? And can you say more about it if it is? 
I presume it is. Absolutely. I think, you know, if you think of what companies are trying to do with their data is to get value out of it. They're trying to get all of that data that they've collected over a period of, you know, 20, 30, 40 years into some kind of operational structure so that they can determine the best use of their data, apply it to different use cases, delight customers and all of that, right? So that's great. You know, that's the intent. One of our customer execs, you know, recently called me and said, you know what's happening? The world thinks that everything is a Hollywood movie. And, you know, Bruce Willis and the young guy who were in a car, you know, in in some diehard three or four version. And people think that everything is everything is going to get done in the next, you know, 15 minutes with a kid with a backpack and a keyboard and a mobile Internet connection. The challenge really is, is that it's not that simple. So if you talk to any serious data leader today, you know, they essentially have a multi-generational technology sprawl. They've got mainframes, they've got Teradata, they've got, you know, different kinds of relational databases, they've got Salesforce, Oracle ERP, they've got Hadoop in between, and they are now, you know, selecting between Databricks and Azure Synapse and, and you name it. So the real challenge is that, you know, where does data become useful? Is it going to become useful in all of these different versions or is it going to come together in a data lake? Is it going to come inside the data warehouse? How are you going to use it? And that was sort of the unique insight that we had in 2018 that, you know, every time that I spoke with a customer, they would say that, you know, you guys have given us the platform, but I don't know how to use it. I don't know what to do when something goes wrong. So what we figured out was that, you know, whether it is data and analytics, whether it is machine learning and AI, custom dashboarding, reporting, any of these use cases take a lot of time to develop. You know, the constituents of the whole data ecosystem in general, they have very, very different requirements and it's very difficult for the data team to satisfy everyone's requirement. So I, I, I think, you know, we saw the opportunity over there. And that's how we started, you know, and the core hypothesis, you know, that became for, for us to start was, Everybody was going to become data-driven. Everybody will have more and more complexity attached to it, and there are not enough talented people. So anything that you can do automatically with, you know, observability and automated actions would become a big thing. Now, you're the CEO. How technical are you? Are you a technical CEO? I mean, are you in the, in the trenches? Are you coding? Or are you running a business? Yeah, so my code has not hit production since 2019. So it's been two years. That <laughs> well, 2019 code. is not bad. That's not too yeah, long it's not ago. Bad. Yeah, it's not too bad. And I still write my own scripts and try to figure out, you know, what's going on within the organization. I try to keep an eye on, you know, what are the projects that are, you know, getting popular uh, within the community is trying to figure out, you know, who has applied what kind of logic. It's really important. You know, I'm a product-led CEO, so for me, it's really important to be in touch with the realities of the world, and, and tech is moving really fast right now. So if you're not keeping in, 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 in touch with what's happening in the world, I don't think you have a good position, you're in a good position to, to sort of win this market. You were at Hortonworks prior to the acquisition? I was, Caldera? yes. Yeah, so you That's left, nice. well, you left before the acquisition. Then. And I left before the acquisition, yeah. indeed. Is Hadoop still a future player? I mean, is it going to be a future player five years from now? Yeah, I, I think it's tough to comment on that. But I would say that, you know, the net value of that stack eventually will decline. There's no doubt about that. Um, the only pattern that people keep reminding me is that, you know, everybody said mainframes were going to be out and they never went out of fashion. Now, as true as that sounds, it appears that, you know, the equivalent data processing paradigms on the cloud and through the ISVs, they're actually getting better and better. So with every passing day, we are seeing feature equivalence, you know, more comprehensive availability of, you know, data compute platforms on the cloud. 
And it could be argued that, you know, over a period of time, cloud is going to be the future. Now, the question really is, uh, or the contention really is that is cloud as cost efficient as, you know, on-premise Hadoop data lakes? And I think uh, that is probably the last uh, question that people need to answer. If that is answered well, I think, you know, we are looking at a wholesale migration towards the cloud. I mean, you compare it to mainframe. When I think of mainframe, look, I'm, I'm an IBM, so you know, yeah, they're, they're still running very, very, very strong. It's like, it's almost like a car. That's a, you know, a lot of people think, oh, mainframes are legacy or something. Are you kidding me? It's like, we don't call cars legacy, but, you know, cars were what manufactured on the line, like around 1916 or something like that. I don't know. I'll get that wrong. But, and we just continue to improve them. The same thing with the mainframe. I think the first mainframe maybe in the forties, IBM's mainframe, I think was around 1964 or something like that. But Hadoop, it hadn't been around near that long. And does it have the traction that you think it it needs to to survive in the future? I think the real question over there is, is it mission critical enough? Mainframes are, and therefore they survive. I think most of the system of records, you know, transactions, everything that banks do today, it's based mm-hmm. on a network that's backed by mainframes. Uh, I don't know if Hadoop is powering all the mission-critical use cases. I think it is certainly to a large extent powering extremely large you know, data companies, whether it's banks, financial companies, financial institutions, credit card companies, hospitals, healthcare companies. Everybody is using that for serving mission-critical use cases. I think if the mission-critical use cases continue to be there, which is in line with the philosophy of Hadoop, that you, know, you can bring in structured, unstructured, different kinds of data, process that, as quickly as you can and as efficiently as you can, and then still get your batch and real-time reports, then if that's the use case that you're looking at, I think you know that's going to com- continue to function. If you're, and, and there's the, the, the fundamental truth as well, which is where are the applications right now? You know, I think it's, we are entering into the early phases of a decade-long journey into the migration of cloud. And you know, there, there's going to be different phases and different uh, kinds of applications which will move to the cloud to begin with and therefore the associated data, and therefore the associated eventual data compute platforms. So I think it's going to be a sequence, not one after the other, or not all at once. will be a sequence in, in some kind of order. Makes sense. Makes sense. Thank you for that. Excel data, been around four years. Why the name Excel data? To just accelerate the success of data of your organization. You know, this was so, precisely the problem that we wanted to solve, that ROI is so backed up. It's almost like, you know, supply chain and COVID, you know, if you really want to make the supply chain of data work effectively, then you need to watch it as as closely as possible because it's so precious. And so we felt that, you know, Excel data would be the right name for this company. Makes sense. So you're driving the concept of data observability Mm -hmm. and um, that data has to be managed in a multidimensional way. Can you say more on the meaning and definition of data observability in your mind? Yeah, of course. You know, when you think about data observability, it is about, you know, looking at data slightly differently. The first thing is that you need deep insights and cross-sectional visibility. Now, what do I mean by cross-sectional or comprehensive visibility? It essentially means that you're able to monitor the supply chain of data. And the supply chain of data has three key elements. One, the data pipeline itself. Now, data pipelines are being constructed by data engineers day in and day out, which are essentially... You could call them from the old paradigm as ETL scripts, but they have actually evolved to become so much more these days. So essentially it is about connecting the data which is generated at the point of origin and tracking it all the way to the point of consumption. 
when you deliver this data from you know the point of consumption to the you know point of or you know point of origin to point of consumption you need to make sure that the reliability of data can be verified at every step you know that the pipeline defines whether it is about you know loading data from different sources transforming it or doing something with it enriching it and eventually taking it to consumption and the final thing is the third layer which is the third stack of it is that you know the infrastructure that you run it on whether it's a spark engine whether it's spark on kubernetes whether it is you know some cloud data paradigm that runs efficiently there should not be any latency there should not be any performance gaps so if you can guarantee the quality of data if you can guarantee the quality of performance and if you can guarantee the sla of the data pipeline then you know your business process is accurate i can give, give you an example if you're running let's say credit card fraud check algorithms you know 10000 times a day you want to make sure that that pipeline or that business process has exactly run 10000 times a day within the same limits of performance with the same level of quality of data without any drifts in data without any drifts in schema so it's really important to think about you know data as a concept of a domain you know which represents a business process or function and all the elements that will necessitate its accuracy that needs to be monitored so that that process is called data observability could you repeat the three layers real quick though for the audience yeah so data pipelines data reliability and infrastructure compute those are the three layers which layer do you think is the most troublesome depends upon your journey so you know if you drew a capability maturity model for an enterprise they go through different phases and some of those you know some companies are very early in their journey where the infrastructure and compute troubles them a lot you're in the process of definition what you need from your data which is you know commensurate with what you're trying to you know selection of technology adoption of that learning that the team is continuing to learn that so infrastructure and, and you know the pipelines they go in parallel and then data reliability then becomes an ongoing problem now here's the the wrench or the curveball as your data volumes grow the infrastructure and the pipelines they start breaking because you'd built it with assumptions so you know there's like a phase of stability there's then the phase of instability and then there's stability so it's almost like a sinusoidal curve where does um data cleanliness fit into these these categories reliability reliability you know what is really happening is that industry if you just think of the backdrop of what has really changed the volume of data that has gone up it it's gone up by like 100x maybe even 500x you know companies that were generating you know 10 terabytes of data a year are now generating you know 10 terabytes of data a day so that's just completely blown up you know they've gone up like by 300 times in terms of just the data volume and the other thing that is the big change you know which i don't think enough people recognize and talk about is the lack of structure so if you went back you know 20 years back you had all the data that you had in your data marts or data warehouses everything had a structure it had a definition it had a name called customer it had you know a derivative called you know customer reports or customer name customer marketing customer advertising all of that had structure there was like some merit to the definition of that but today what's happening is that you know newer sources of data come without any definition so the schema is no longer on write the schema has become on read so i could just start sending you a, a new uh, you know feed and if you're basically the recipient at the data lake it's up to you to figure out you know what am i sending you know if you look at the large data companies which which sort of are responsible for let's say providing insurance underwriting data if they're responsible for providing you know trade related data they're dealing with you know 50000 100000 different sources of data of the definition that you know they have tried to define as best as possible but you know the cleanliness of that is not their guarantee so the volume has changed now with such volume your 
compute comes under pressure. So you need more resources. If you're on the cloud, it'll cost you a lot. But what has really changed is that people are now making decisions off this data in real time because all of these have all these data sources, all these processes have been sort of you know operationalized. So when you're trying to put all of that data into action, what you have really is the risk of having unreliable data outcomes. So if you were the CDO, if you were the SVP of engineering and you were trying to get better results out of your data and analytics initiatives, then you would basically be worrying if you know that data was unclean and if you were going to make unreliable decisions based on unreliable data. So it's become really, really important. Well, so that's why, I mean, you're talking my language here. I mean, in terms of, I figured it was going to go into the reliability category. You know, it's hard to find one source of the truth when we're talking to data. And on this podcast, quite frankly, we talk about it all the time. But the question is, is how do you solve this problem? Because it's almost like the the tech world is going the wrong way in that you got no SQL database, you got no schema databases. I think you're mentioning this. So developers love it. They can just develop, get started quickly. But then before you know it, you've got a mess to clean up. How do you solve the problem? How do you keep the data clean? Well, you know, first of all, you've got to get control of the map that is visible in front of you. You know, like I was telling you, some of our uh, executive sponsors, they essentially are dealing with the Pivotal Cloud Foundry, Azure, Hadoop, you know, relational databases, all of that together. And it's not even just the lack of structure. It's basically about harmonizing structured data and unstructured data. And that's where most of the pain is coming from. I think things are definitely better than how they were five or six years ago. You know, because way back in 2015 or something, you know, you would only have five customers who were extremely successful with something like Hadoop. But today, if you just look around the room, I think the Fortune 500 have figured out. I don't think, you know, the top 10,000 companies have figured it out all out. And I definitely think that, you know, developers are still required, you know, in this modern age. And I think that is putting a lot of constraint in terms of who's eventually going to win with data. If you look at Facebook, Apple, Google, you know, any of these large hyperscalers, because they have the ability and the access to talent that can deal with the complexity that's arisen, I think they are at a bigger and bigger advantage. You know, with every passing day, I think, you know, they are at a bigger advantage because they can figure out, understand the insights that the data that they've collected is providing them and they're doing better. I think the first thing that people need to realize is that there's going to be a centralization. You know, there's going to be a centralization of selection of technology, the ownership of people, and the ownership of data delivery. And if you put all of these three aspects together within a centralized function, which also owns its own IT very, very independently, I think, you know, you're going to meet with more success than failure, first of all. Second is, I think, you know, a lot of a lot has been said about, you know, what data catalogs can do and cannot do. I think catalogs are an interesting concept, but they're just the beginning of the journey. Um, but I personally believe that, you know, catalogs have literally failed the data and analytics industry for the last 40 years. So what you really need is an active management policy, which essentially is something that observability is trying to bring to this whole industry that, you know, we know that I'm going to ask you to take a very, very complex journey from San Francisco to New York but I'm not even giving, willing to give you the navigation map. And I feel that, you know, getting active in the process, trying to figure out what our critical data elements are, what are the critical workloads, where is data moving from, what are the interconnections between two systems, as opposed to just looking at it within the system boundary. I think some of those key elements will be really required to, to be figured out before you meet with, you know, outside the data success. 
And unless you do that, I think it's going to be the ROIs further pushed out, you know, maybe by two, maybe by five years. Great. Thank you for that. So let's talk about Excel data. Sure. What What's the technology behind Excel data and how does it differ from what we see in the market today? Yeah. So, you know, uh, let's draw two reference points. You know, if you go back to the previous generation companies, you know, which were doing observability or are doing observability, monitoring something which is very, very defined. So, for example, user takes an action on the browser or the mobile uh, application. A request is initiated, a workflow is triggered. That workflow has, you know, 10 to 15 different steps. Those steps get over and you've monitored the whole thing. You know, you're implementing Oracle ERP. You're basically, you know, setting up a workflow and a process and you're monitoring that. So that's like the previous generation of companies where you're sort of automating manually defined processes and you're trying to put IT into that. Circa 2020, what's happening? You know, we're collecting, all of us are collecting a lot of data. You know, we are large enterprises. We want to delight our customers. We want to do recommendations. We want to do next best action. We want to be predictive, preemptive, all of that. So what's really happening? We don't know what do we have in our data, you know, because there's no structure. So there's no table which says, you know, in my data warehouse, which comes and tells me that, hey, here are the predictions that we can list down for our customers in the next 15 minutes. None. There's nothing. We've got to figure out what are those hidden insights in the data that we've collected over the last five years. And what you end up finding is that all the tools that you apply to identify those insights are extremely rudimentary. And so you start finding those. Now, as you find out those insights, you know, what you see then is that those tools are, you know, either failing you because they are not stable, they are built by a community and you've just adopted a version of it, or they are not performing as accurately as you should or or as they should because of your changing volumes. The third is your own demands from the business consumers and everybody that changes. So the first thing was to recognize that this is a very, very ambiguous space to sort of, you know, enter into. So we, the first thing that we did was that we identified, you know, what are the different compute models? You know, how, how does streaming technology work? How does large-scale data processing work? And of course, our background helped in all of that. And we tried to figure out ab initio through first principles that, you know, what are the different changes? So for example, data reliability is not about, you know, just going and monitoring a few databases and saying, okay, we're good. Data reliability is now about understanding, you know, petabytes of data and saying 50% of these rows don't make sense. So I think fundamentally what we had to do was to completely rewrite, uh, you know, the technology. We had to break all the previous assumptions and, you know, deal with a lot more ambiguity in this space. Some of the other companies which were created in the 2019 and 2020 timeframe are essentially also trying to do some similar things, but they're only tackling the, the, uh, the area of data quality. So I think we are fundamentally different. Now, the key components that we look at, uh, look at ourselves as that, you know, first of all, We need to be able to process different kinds of data at a very, very different kind of scale. As an example, you know, we get signals from the infrastructure layer, from the compute layer, which is Spark or Hive or, you know, any of the SQL technologies that you're using or Kafka. So we get, you know, data points and metrics at a velocity that we've not experienced in the past. You get data reliability constraints, which is, you know, metadata, SQLs, user information and everything. So therefore, you need a correlation engine we can, which can correlate all of these different metrics at, at a level that all of these uh, information pieces then become actionable for operators, data engineers, and executives together. And of course, you know, the way that we thought about a technology was that there's going to be a range of different kinds of users. So the most technically adept will you know, integrate with this programmatically, 
and you know the, the you know the the least ones will probably want to consume all of this data in a very very self serve um, UI based fashion. So all of these elements had to be recreated. Do you work with any corpus of data? I mean, can it be Hadoop? Can it be data warehouse? Can it be OLTP? Doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So today we support OLTP databases. We support you know uh, cloud data warehouses all of those technologies and including Hadoop. But the key thing to note is that, you know, we're focused on unstructured data, where most of the problems are today. Unstructured data, that, that makes sense. Are you hybrid? Can you go across different corpuses of data in different clouds? Yeah. So what, that was like one of the fundamental assumptions of ours, that, you know, it's always going to be a multi-technology and a multi-generational sprawl. You go to any enterprise, and since we're, we're focused on the enterprise. We were very clear that, you know, the multi-generational technology sprawl is not going to go away. And, you know, any enterprise today, which is trying to sort of figure out a strategy which will work for their data, most of the times you'll find that, you know, they have at least two clouds in the mix. So give us a description of your typical engagement, how it works, where it starts, how you're engaged. Yeah, so it's very interesting. You know, one of our first customers was GE. And they essentially wanted wing-to-wing visibility. Their their whole vision was give us all of it and give us now. You know, um, so we started working with them. A lot of our vision has been developed with customers. You know, we're always customers first. Because customers are, you know, at the bleeding edge of sort of innovation in a different way. That, you know, while the Facebooks and the Googles have shown the path, you know, some of them decide to walk it. So we work with customers very, very clearly trying to identify and understand, you know, what are the key challenges that they're facing with. Incidentally, our second customer, they were essentially a hyperscaler in India. You know, PhonePay has about 300 million daily active users. And last year alone, they processed about $700 billion on their, uh, you know, mobile app platform, which is approximately of the size of 17% of the economy of India at $4 trillion. So it's a pretty significant undertaking. For them, the biggest challenge is that their infrastructure, which is the OLTP databases, the OLAP databases, and the streaming systems, they cannot go down. So system reliability is like the number one concern for them. So we actually started working with them at the infrastructure and compute layer, which is you know a pulse-led initiative. When we started working with them, they only had about 70 nodes. And today they are at about you know, 1,700 nodes in less than two and a half years. And they've just ramped like anything. They were like in a bit of fight with Google and another Berkshire Hathaway company called Paytm. And they beat them hands down. You know, 50% of the market is at phone pay. And for the last two years, they've experienced zero S1s. The systems have been absolutely reliable. And that is something that we bring to those engagements. Now, when we, another example that I want to give you is about Verisk. You know, we started working with that company about, you know, uh, six months ago. And they wanted end-to-end visibility into all their data pipelines. And they are essentially, you know, the provider for all the underwriting data for everything that happens in the U.S. from an underwriting perspective, whether it's State Farm or any other company. And they needed, you know, visibility into the reliability of their data. So we started at the data reliability layer. And, you know, that engagement has been going well. So what we did was we thought of the whole cloud as, you know, a set of capabilities of feature families. And depending upon where the customer has the most pain, like I mentioned earlier, you know, advanced customers will have issues in their data reliability layer. You know, early customers will have issues in their infrastructure layer. And really advanced customers will buy all three. So we sort of make sure that, you know, the solutions are independently selling as well as opposed to just the platform. Are they running all your software or is it mixed between different software or is it mostly you guiding the implementation of their software? 
So uh, we essentially have a self-serve version as well so that, you know, you can download the bits, you know, deploy it in your VPC or sign up for our cloud and, you know, start working from there. Uh, and we give you a version of that. The implementation is fairly straightforward, you know. So for us, uh, like I was telling you earlier, if you're basically a customer with, let's say, a thousand nodes and you wanted to install infrastructure and compute visibility, we'll be in and out in less than seven hours. Makes sense. Your first example with no downtime, I presume that was in the infrastructure layer. Was yep. that a matter of just adding redundancy or what? So it was actually about, you know, adding visibility. So this is the most common example that I give to everyone. If you had a small kid in the house, you know, let's say a toddler, you'd always watch him. Data systems are just like toddlers. You know, they are going to basically, <laughs> they're going to break all the time. They're going to try to do, you know, try to go into areas that you don't feel comfortable with and therefore you've got to keep watching that. So reliability is nothing but, you know, operating at a level with a visibility that is telling you the real-time status of all your systems, all your services, all your users, all your workloads. And if, if you get the advanced information, let's say, if I know that, you know, I'm going to have an outage 12 hours later, then I've got, you know, a lead or a jump of 12 hours on the problem. And therefore, you know, I won't let it go. Are, do you have AI built in? Say more on your, your implementation of AI. Yeah. Yeah, so we actually did a lot of, you know, predictive implementation. So the first thing that we did was to basically, you know, look at ML principles. You know, first thing that we do is we analyzed all the different data. Like I was mentioning to you earlier that, you know, we collect all the data that comes into, um, you know, the system at different velocities. You know, you get metrics from the infrastructure level, the compute layer, the data level, the metadata, user, all of that. And then you start harmonizing that. You basically say, okay, here is the feature family that I'm going to go create. And these are the weights that I'm going to assign. So the first thing that we did was that we started identifying anomalies. And once you start identifying those anomalies, then going and predicting when you will run out of capacity on a something. Now, the number of times that we compute these predictions depends upon the frequency of usage. So for example, if it's Kafka producer or a consumer topic, which is extremely heavily used, then we can tell you that, you know, the rebalance is appearing in, in the next 48 minutes. But if it's just cost, you know, we can compute it once a day and send it out to the exec or the CFO who's, you know, sort of responsible for making sure they don't run out of money. Makes sense. So you've done well in a short amount of time. I know you tell me if I'm wrong here, but uh, I know you have GE, you've got Walmart, you got Michelin as some of your early customers. How did that develop? Is that more of a co-development type of thing? Is that how you get in? I mean, is your technology just wow them? Is it a little bit of everything? I mean, how did you secure, you know, some of those large customers so quickly? Yeah, it was very interesting. You know, the early customers, GE and PhonePay, which was which is basically the Walmart company, I think, you know, they, they enabled us to actually get a real peak. Now, while we had our own ideas, you know, coming from Hotworks and we understood real-time production environments and batch production environments really well, I think there was definitely an element of collaboration with our early customers, you know, in 2018 and 2019. By the end of 2019, we were pretty sure that, you know, our infrastructure and compute layer was coming together very well. So 2019 onwards, you know, I would say Q4 2019, we didn't have to worry, you know, Pulse started selling on its own. So we are these days, you know, we do contracts in less than, you know, four to six weeks, which is amazing, you know, at an enterprise scale. Um, on the data reliability aspect, you know, we launched the first beta version in 2020, late 2020, and GA in, in Q1 of 2021. We're still learning on that, you know, because that space itself, you know, data management and data reliability as a space is just way, way too 
too big. You know, it's all you, you could almost say that it's the Wild West at this point in time. Yes, yes. Everybody has a, a version of everything. Somebody has a DQ tool, somebody has, you know, a governance tool. And, and there's the other thing as well that, you know, some customers see this problem. And some are just getting to that, which is that they are unable to, you know, put their finger on where the problem is. So it depends upon the maturity of the customer as well, you know, because while we would like to work with everybody, I don't think everybody works with us right now in the sense that they don't have greater than 100 terabytes of data. They don't have five different systems and they don't have a fully fledged, you know, function which takes care of data. And in the absence of those three, you know, we, we don't feel we are the best partners. Expand on that a little bit more. So you believe or you're really tailored for large corpuses of data, like 100 terabyte or more. Absolutely. That's the best place for us to be. Does that mean you anything less than that? It doesn't work or is it just not as optimal as you'd like to see it? Or it, the value prop isn't isn't quite sustained? The environment is not as complex as where you would basically apply the principles of observability. Now, it may so happen that, you know, you may need one layer of the solution. So if you're, let's say, at a 10 terabyte, you know, data warehouse and you're worried about data reliability. So absolutely, you know, you could use the solution. But if you're looking at full-fledged, you know, monitoring, optimization and understanding of your data pipelines, of your infrastructure and compute and data reliability, then you'd probably be above, you know, 100 terabytes. And like I was mentioning earlier, Companies, enterprises that have this level of complexity, they get to about 10 terabytes or 5 terabytes of data almost every day. So it's, you know, almost like a, a fully intersecting Venn diagram that you have the complexity and you have the volume of data. Does your technology then prevent future issues with reliability infrastructure? I mean, does it anticipate? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one of the first things that we did, you know, like I was mentioning earlier, that, you know, we created these different interfaces that all the way from self-serve to programmatic implementation. And if you want to be really preemptive, you know, one of the biggest shifts that we are seeing in data reliability is that people don't want to wait until the poor outcomes have been achieved. So what people are really trying to do is to shift left. They want to eliminate the data risk. And by that, what I really mean is that the moment data has landed in your raw zone before it heads into your cloud data warehouses or your data warehouses, you'd like to, you know, clarify as much of that as possible. You'd like to clean that data. You'd like to make sure that you can make good business decisions based on that data. And that element of shifting the risk towards left is what is the biggest change. So if you think of, you know, how do you prevent that? You essentially integrate with the APIs. So as you're writing your ETL processes, as you're writing, you know, your orchestration tools and using different kinds of compute paradigms, such as Spark, such as DBT, such as, you know, Java, you can insert those APIs and make sure that as you're processing your data inline, you can both call synchronous blocking and, syn and asynchronous non-blocking calls onto the data quality and make sure that you're able to get the answers before that data goes and hits the data warehouse or the eventual point of consumption. And the more you do it in advance, the better it becomes for you. And over a period of time, what ends up happening is that you're enabling your developers to go and use all of these APIs, provide them with standard services as opposed to letting them build their own. You're able to standardize for the rest of the organization. Where do you think you guys will be like three, four or five years from now? I think we'll be a fairly large company with... Uh, the leadership in the space, and we would have educated the market about data observability sufficiently so that everybody knows that this is the thing, this is the missing layer of the data stack that they had been wanting for such a long time. Where do you get most of your OI, your identification, your opportunities? Where did most of your, your clientele come from? 
So it's interesting. You know, we've got a mix. We basically have our own sales force at this point in time, and we've got a fully fledged, you know, fully functioning marketing team as well. Mm-hmm. So we've got both motions, which is outbound and inbound. And we also have some really good partners. You know, some of that includes, you know, companies like Kindrel. We are partners with them. A lot of mm-hmm. partnership opportunities are coming from there. A lot of references are coming from there. We are also partners with, you know, large consulting firms. And so what we're seeing is that, you know, there's like a tremendous interest in in some of these partners also to go build practices around our products because, you know, our products are required for data operations anyway across the companies. So if you have a customer and you want to basically provide them with better data ops, you know, you can use our tools and platforms. We're also seeing a lot of interest from the cloud players as they are trying to complete the um, their offerings for their customers. They're also sort of, you know, engaging with companies like us. Why now? What made you say, hey, this is my time. This is my, you know, we're going to start this company. We're going to keep it going. And obviously it was a great time and you're doing well. But what made you do that? Well, you know, the answer is sort of very simple to think of. You know, if you went back to 2010, I was 2009, actually. I was one of the early adopters of a company called AppDynamics, right? They were basically, you know, monitoring Java applications. And I used to write a lot of code in Java back then. AppDynamics came on the back of, you know, 15 years of extremely strong IT deployment. You know, IT systems were being deployed in production. They were becoming mission critical. Therefore, they had to be monitored. I think, you know, data systems, you know, data in general turned a leaf in the year 2015. And in the next three years, the number of number of data systems that I saw in production, especially large scale, big data systems, I think it turned a leaf in 2015. So between 2015 and 2018, I saw that there was like, massive interest and inclination to deploy data intensive applications which are doing things like you know pre- predictions recommendation next best action etc and what i felt was that you know this wave is going to be at least you know 10 times bigger than the previous wave so data applications will change the world you know there's no doubt about that and i felt that you know this opportunity could be you know at least 10 times as big as you know the apm opportunity so that was like the fundamental hypothesis you know it it is it almost was undeniable that everybody was trying to become data driven Everybody had to deal with more complexity. And I knew from the inside that there are not enough people who can deal with this complexity. There's like a severe talent shortage. So you needed visibility, automation, all the good things. You mentioned you started with a few people, but do you have like a a primary partner? Do you have a Steve Wozniak? It's a very interesting story. So, you know, uh, the glue of the organization, I would say the brains behind the organization is a really young guy who's about six, seven years younger to us, maybe even eight years younger to us. He's like the brains behind the organization. And, you know, one of the fundamental things that I sort of coalesce on is that, you know, is this a group that I can work together with? And when the four of us, you know, decided to leave, we knew that we could run this band for 10 years. It's about, you know, playing music that I know how to play drums and you know how to play the guitar. And there's a vocalist and there's somebody else on the keyboard. That's all that you need. And I felt that, you know, we had a good garage band, you know, over here. And, you know, uh, for most of us, actually three of us, this is our 10th year working together. So Ashwin is the Wozniak. You know, he basically says that this is how it will be done. Then he shows that it will be done by writing the first set of code and showing the integration and the flows. And finally, he says that, okay, here is how we did it. So it, it's a rare skill to say what you're going to do and then show how you're going to do it and eventually deliver. So it's, it's interesting. I think we can keep going on for a lot longer in the sense that, you know, we enjoy working with each other. What's the number one thing you've learned over this process last four years? Number one thing, if you had to just like, I know it could change day to day, but what comes to your mind right now? It's all about the people. So I define my role as being the service provider for the company. 
and you know just making sure that everybody is able to do their best work without interference and without friction and if i can get that going you know every company will will work together when you reduce the friction and when people click together you know no technology problem no market problem no partnership problem is insurmountable you will win makes sense hey is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to to mention well i think we covered a lot of topics i think the only thing that we actually did not discuss today is the difference between the dna market and the ai and ml market and i've started to come to terms with those two different markets now and i think you know the ai market is going to further necessitate visibility operability of data systems in a different way in an altogether fundamentally different way because what we're seeing is that you know if you're collecting ai data for training if you're collecting signals for training your models and if you're trying to look for outcomes over there that's actually a few times more complicated than just you know the dna market while most of the customers you know if you if you drew a curve 90% of the customers are just toying with you know ml and ai models you know probably deploying five models at at you know at at a time today that's going to change you know that's the next big change that's around the corner well for ai statistically speaking you're better off having more uh, data that's organized that's clean that's reliable than not right you've got more statistic and, decisions you can make right absolutely and non drifting consistent yes. quality and, yeah no bias <laughs> no bias so i i think if you don't apply the principles of, of observability on your entire data set today then the prediction and outcomes that you're going to get are going to be you know radically poor or you know ill fated i would say very good very good thank you where can folks reach you uh well i'm on twitter at rc online and i'm on linkedin as rohit chaudhry uh those are the best places to reach out to me in exceldata.com rohit at exceldata.com at .io what do you do for fun rohit i've got two boys you know i play with them all the time Yeah. We play different kinds of games. I've got a nine-year-old and a six-year-old, so we do a lot of running around. Unlike you know the the CEO personality, I'm actually totally with them, uh, and playing the games that they design. It could be sometimes you know a simple game which my younger son designed. It's called Catch the Pillow. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that works, man. That works good. You you've got inventors in your in your family. That's terrific. <laughs> that is so true. So so thank you for being here. I so greatly appreciate it. Learned a lot today. Learned a lot today. Well, thank you so much for having me here and it was great talking to you as well. So team, uh listeners, data systems are just like toddlers. Don't forget it. That's one of the major things we learned today from Rohit Chaudhry. Rohit, thank you very much. Looks like you're going to do well. Looks like Excel Data is going to do extremely well. Already doing well. Listeners, thank you for listening and um until next time, you know, hit us on almartontalksdata@gmail.com. Otherwise, we will see you on the podcast. Thank you. See y'all.